This is Reengineering the Business of Healthcare. Ideas, trends, and visions of a better healthcare system for everyone. Here's Dr. Matthew Kalinsky. My guest this week is Sean Weiss, aka The Compliance Guy. Sean is a partner and vice president of compliance at Doctors Management, a full-scale practice management and regulatory consultancy. Over his 25-year career, Sean has helped healthcare facilities find workable solutions on issues surrounding healthcare compliance, medical auditing, and practice and revenue cycle management. Sean, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? It's great to be here, Doc. Thank you so much. I'm doing well, enjoying this uh, crisp, fresh, cool air that we're experiencing here in Georgia. Very nice. Very nice. So talk to me about the compliance guy. How did you become the compliance guy? And, and what is your role in that component from the compliance guy uh, uh, framework? You know, it's actually, and, and this is a true story. I've had a lot of people that are like, wow, did you dub yourself the compliance guy? And I'm like, anybody who knows me knows that's just not something I would do outside of my, my healthcare quote unquote persona. I'm actually a really quiet, private, laid back, easygoing person. I was giving a lecture about eight or nine years ago, maybe even 10 years ago. My wife always tells me I'm terrible with uh, time. So let's just say about 10 years ago, I, I was getting ready to give a lecture and I was walking up to get ready to be introduced. And this doctor walks up to me and he goes, I know you. And he kind of startled me. And I said, oh, okay. He goes, you're that compliance guy. And I went, um, he goes, no, no, no. You're the compliance guy. I never heard anybody recite statutes and acts and all these <laughs> other numbers like you have. You're the compliance guy. And I just remember kind of being shooken up a little bit. Good thing or bad thing. I don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But, you know, it kind of, I told the story to one of my colleagues and next thing you know, it just, it stuck. And the company was like, hey, this is a great angle. I mean, this is really the world that you live in. And let's kind of tout you as the compliance guy. For better or worse, it's it's kind of been my uh, mo for the last uh, at least the last decade. Uh, what type of lectures were you giving at that time, and has it changed uh, over the past couple of years? Yeah, you know, so I still talk a lot on regulatory compliance, health law. Uh, I focus a lot on the False Claims Act, the healthcare fraud statutes, Stark, anti-kickback, antitrust health insurance, portability and accountability, OSHA, all those different aspects that make up regulatory compliance. What's been interesting about my, um, my career path or career trajectory, whatever you want to call it, um, a, lot of, a lot of same organizations, uh, specialty societies, management associations, different groups uh, of professionals uh, that you know ask me to come and either give a keynote or a general uh, session, but you know the really interesting uh, thing, and 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 again, as I said, you know I'm I feel like I'm just a good Southern guy from Georgia uh, who's pretty simple, you know, with just a defined set of skills in a particular right. area. Uh, but I'm getting a lot of universities now reaching out to me. Um, 
Ivy League schools asking me to deliver um, the commencement for graduating classes, and it's um, it's it's actually I don't know. Uh, you know, like I said, I I it, thirty years ago somebody would would have told me I'd be doing what I'm doing right now and giving lectures at universities and in front of thousands of physicians at a time for different societies, I'd be like, yeah, right. <laughs> what do you think is causing that importance in terms of the the compliance being a keynote speaker at the graduation ceremonies? I mean, is it your role with doctor's management? Is it your impact into the changing environment of healthcare or, or is it something else? Yeah, I, you know, that's a great question. Um, and, and as I said, I find myself scratching my head a lot on this. Um, I would say it's, it's really a little bit of all of it, right? You know, obviously, doctor's management um, has been a wonderful vessel to help bring me to a point in our industry where I'm able to have a solid brand behind me. But I would say... Uh, a lot has to do with my social media presence, uh, my continuous blogging, my uh, podcasts, you know, that I'm a part of. Folks are, are, are starting to find me and, you know, some who may have, may have seen an image of me uh, in a ball cap and a t-shirt at yeah, some point, yeah. not taking me seriously, but finally having an opportunity to listened to one of my podcasts and was like, hey, you know, there is some substance to that. Uh, and I'm also, you know, I'm also very, very definitive in my, in my stance and how I approach compliance. We're going to definitely dive into that in a little bit. Can you just um, kind of, for everyone who's listening, uh, kind of just talk about the services from doctor management and, and who are the type of clients that typically utilize you just so we can have a framework for when you're answering the next question, which is, what is your stance? <laughs> yeah, certainly. So our organization is comprised of approximately 11 divisions or departments. Our clients, we service approximately 60,000 physicians across the United States. Our services are tailored and scalable from the solo physician all the way through the integrated delivery healthcare system with more than 5,000 providers. Our services range in scope from credentialing, provider enrollment, training and education of providers and their staff, development of corporate compliance programs, audits, investigations into complaints that are brought forward by individuals within the organizations where they need an independent, objective third party to review. Me personally, I am responsible for the strategic litigation defense department in our organization and regulatory compliance. I get contracted to more than 30 law firms across the United States, and it seems like the list of law firms reaching out to us on a daily basis just keeps growing. But I am used in multiple ways with these law firms. Uh, sometimes they want me to serve as the subject matter expert and to be the expert witness in their case. Uh, other times I'm asked to help prepare the attorneys uh, who may not have that finite set of understanding mm -hmm. within the healthcare law space. Mm -hmm. 
because I tell people all the time, regulatory compliance and health law is unlike any other type of law that people could practice. Um, it is so complex. And I would say over two and a half decades of doing this work outside of nuclear, I don't know a more regulated industry than healthcare. <laughs> Did everybody hear that who's listening? <laughs> I agree. And I've been preaching that for a long time. That's where a lot of the opportunity for re-engineering comes into play is, you know, does it have to be that regulated? And I think we'll get into some good conversation here. So do you think that from your experience, you know, you mentioned that the hospitals, the doctors are hiring doctor management to help them for whatever case it is. Has that changed over the past couple of years in terms of the reasons why they're reaching out to you? And, and is it associated with any changing laws or anything like that? Yeah. You know, there's always cycles in healthcare, right? And occasionally we see some dynamic shifts in the landscape, which causes people to kind of freak out and start going, wow, what do we do? Um, you know, most of the larger hospital networks or the delivery health systems that hire us, it's a constant reason for bringing us in. It's, you know, help us understand what our risks are uh, as far as exposure to audits. Do our physicians documentation uh, hold up to the levels of service that are billing? What does our policy and procedure manual look like? You know, what are, you know, do we have the proper SOPs in place? Um, we've had uh, a breach of our system. Uh, you know, can you help us negotiate a settlement or resolution agreement with uh, the Office for Civil Rights? You know, so those tend to be very consistent. The ones where I've seen a lot of dynamic shift are in the one doctor to 10 doctor practices and the aggressiveness towards those practices by government investigators uh, from the Office of Inspector General, the Unified Program Integrity Contractors, the Medicare Administrative Contractors, the Mafukus, which is you know the, the Medicaid fraud programs, Strike Force, which is the big task force dedicated to fraud, waste, and abuse, because people over the years have have said, well, you know, all these big settlements, they're really just tied to the hospital networks and the big health systems, right? You know, they're they're going after the ones in New York and Boston, Texas, <laughs> Florida, and Detroit. And, and the fact of the matter is that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, with, the, with the increased data mining and the use of data analytics, they don't really care whether you're in Podunk, USA, like where I live, or if you're in the middle of a metropolis. If you're an outlier, they don't care what your specialty is. They don't care how many people are in your group. They're targeting that particular NPI number. Yeah, it's some, you know, and we've, I've seen that trend, you know, I've been out of residency now for six or seven years. And, you know, since I started residency over the 10, 11 years ago, it's just these small practices are giving up hospital privileges. They're merging with other providers just to kind of get over that 10 provider limit, just so it's averaged or normalized from a, a production standpoint. It's, it's tough because a lot of time, and I, I think you're in the middle of a tough situation in terms of, you know, there's regulations and that's a whole other 
discussion we can have, which is, are we being overregulated? Uh, but then the component that I feel for that a lot of our listeners can feel for is really, you know, if you're doing a good job and you're learning year over year, and you're becoming a better doctor because of the experiences you have. Uh, why would reimbursements protect, you know, potentially go down? Or if you do work harder, you know, why are you getting targeted? And it's, it's tough because from, and I'd love to learn your, your stance on that. You know, where do you find or where do you fit in terms of, do you agree with regulation? Are we overregulated? Are we underregulated? Let's start with that. Yeah, we're, we're absolutely overregulated. Okay. There's no doubt about it. And do you think that it we're overregulated to the detriment of primary care or just care in general? I think we're overregulated to the point where it's stifling care in general. Yeah. It's creating a barrier between the providers and the patients. Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah, because providers are in a catch-22. Yep. Like yourself, you, you know, you said you've been out of residency for six or seven years, right? You took a Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. But yet, you have regulators, both at the state level and at the federal level, that are dictating to you yes. how you practice medicine. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I got into healthcare in 1989, right? And I started my healthcare journey working at the front desk of a multi-specialty practice, answering the telephones and scheduling patients. Nice. And back then... 90s are the best time to be in healthcare, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> are you kidding me? The 80s Mercedes? Absolutely. <laughs> Um, but you know, we didn't have computer systems back then. Yeah. And the ones that we had were just used for like data entry and stuff like that. You know, we, we use scheduling books to, to right. put people in. We had paper records. And to me, those were the golden days of healthcare. But the problem that physicians run into started in 19, right around 1992 with the Harvard Ruck study. When we transitioned away from usual customary and reasonable reimbursement to a discount fee for service called the RBRVS. And for your listeners, if, they, if they're not familiar with that acronym, it, it's Medicare's reimbursement. It stands for really bad reimbursement very slowly. <laughs> um, actually, it's the, re it's the resource based relative value scale. Um, but yeah, it, it's really bad reimbursement very slowly. Um, and you know, they, they, as the years have gone by, as the decades have gone by, they've found more ways to strip physicians of reimbursement components, um, you know, by bundling services, by just devaluing the work effort that a provider puts into caring for a patient. And what's happened is We've gotten away from the personalized care of the patient where the physician was face-to-face -face with his or her you know, patient to having to sit with their back to them using a mouse and clicking on little buttons in an electronic health record, which has totally ruined healthcare, by the way. <laughs> and the physicians realize that, look, you know, if I'm going to have any sort of financial stability and any quality of life outside of work, you know, I'm going to have to see a, a significant volume of patients. And, and that's what's so hypocritical about our system right now is because they want to transition to value-based care, which is desperately needed. But you can't transition to value when providers are still dependent upon value because the reimbursement situation is just 
Yep. It's a disgrace. No, I totally agree. I think, you know, kind of when we're thinking about re-engineering, one of the things I love to talk about with people is the what's the process in place for reimbursement and what do we need to get to and how do we how do we come up with a better solution? I I do agree that there has to be some regulation. We need to make sure our patients in general as a population are safe. And so we want to catch the catch the bad apples of the providers, you know, whether they're doing something that they're not trained or allowed to do or they're just giving the wrong medications for the wrong therapies that are 30 years old. Like, yeah, there's got to be regulation from that standpoint. But when you tie in the severe amount of regulation combined with decreasing reimbursement potential, you know, it's, it's really a, a, a tornado of, of winds going in the opposite direction <laughs> and, and nothing can get done, it seems like. No, you're 100% correct. Listen, there's no doubt that there are some bad apples in the industry. And, and to every be industry. honest, yeah, in every <laughs> industry. And, and to be honest, you know, um, I don't want this to come out the wrong way, but, uh, you know, it's those bad actors that kind of keep me employed, right? <laughs> sure, um, sure. And, and, and I'm not saying I want people to be bad actors. I mean, the truth is, the majority of the prosecutions that are taking place, the majority of the investigations that are taking place aren't aren't taking place against individuals who are knowingly acting in deliberate ignorance or in reckless disregard of the laws. That's that's a tiny population. Like, for example, yesterday, a former Pittsburgh area doctor pled guilty to unlawfully prescribing opioids in exchange for sex. And and I know we kind of chuckle about that, and you probably weren't prepared for me to say that. But that's unfortunately what a lot of people who don't really understand what regulatory compliance is and what healthcare is all about, they gravitate that to that. And and they use that as a talking point to say, oh, here you go. Another unethical doctor prescribing opioids and yep. getting, you know, sexual favors in return and committing fraud. And but that's not what it is, right? And the fact of the matter is there really needs to be, to use your word, there needs to be a re-engineering of the system. And and the problem is you're not going to have that re-engineering of the system because the political system is broken. We have serious problems in our country. There is a significant socioeconomic divide that exists, and it's really interesting. I was doing some research uh, for a project that I'm working on. When I started looking at the medical crisis, because that's what we have right now, right? We, we had a broken system before COVID, but not only did it infect people, it infected the entire system. I started looking at one, one critical aspect, which was the medical debt crisis in this country. And I knew it was bad, but I didn't realize just how bad it really was until I started digging into the actual numbers. And for me, when I started looking at it, one of the biggest points was the fact that medical debt was the highest among individuals who lived in the South and in zip codes in the lowest income deciles. And it became more concentrated in the lower income communities in sure. states that did not expand Medicaid. Like now, 
I'm not one of these people that's like, hey, you know, free health care for everybody because there's no such thing as free health care. But I am a staunch believer that every single American citizen deserves quality health care at an affordable price. I couldn't agree more. And on that note, let's take a break. But coming up in the second part of my chat with Sean Weiss, a.k.a. the compliance guy, Sean talks about what it takes to be compliant in 2021. If you're going to create a compliance program, you have to create a culture of compliance, which means your compliance program is a living, breathing document. It's not some paperweight that sits on a shelf and collects dust that nobody knows what it says or where it lives or how it's administered throughout the organization. This is sort of, for me, when I look at compliance, it's your playbook. Reengineering the Business of Healthcare is a production of Advantage Audio. To connect with Dr. Matthew Kalinsky and find out how you can achieve dramatic improvements in business performance, go to matthewkalinsky.com.